You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I'm Ellie Fox and I help connect digital leaders in the NHS with interim talent and today I am your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. And today we will be discussing digital transformation in the NHS. So what we'll do, we'll just start with everyone introducing themselves. So Matt, we'll go to you first. If you could just tell us who you are um, and what you do, that'd be great. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so my name is Matthew Bell. I'm currently a program manager with the Apollo program for Guy's St. Thomas and King's College uh, release of the Epic Healthcare System, uh, which will be happening in 2023. Um, I've uh, been working in the NHS for a better part of uh, about five years now. Uh, most of my time has actually been spent supporting EHR implementations, so Epic specifically, uh, more in the data realm. So I support uh, business intelligence, uh, national returns, operational reporting, uh, and really leading the the charge in terms of how we develop front-end systems to support what our national and operational requirements are to basically use as, as best clinical information as possible to help improve the future healthcare of the system and the trusts. Thank you very much, Matthew. Um, Pei, if we could go over to you. Yep, so um, I'm Pei Van Lin. I'm a consultant ophthalmologist with Moorfields Eye Hospital. Um, and my other hat is uh, the clinical director of digital innovations for um, the digital medicine department at Moorfields, which is a fairly new department that got set up in the early 2020s. Um, and my role mainly is to encourage grassroots change in sort of culture thinking, how digital innovation is developed or thought or sustained, and try and encourage almost like a ground up approach rather than a top down approach. So people present with pain points in their daily lives and um, how they can contribute to trans digital transformation. Um, uh, personally, I'm passionate about making our lives easier with technology. So um, however that may be, either a new app or can simply just changing a new way of people organizing their work. So it's um, my sort of, I suppose, personal passion. Perfect. Thank you very much. And then, Michael, if we could go over to you. Yeah, I'm uh, Michael Maynard. I'm a senior project manager at Geyser St. Thomas's, so uh, a sort of colleague of Matthew's. Um, but I'm working on the um, in, within the project team. So I'm a senior PM, worked in the NHS for around 20 years and also had about 10 years experience working in healthcare, but for BT, CSC and various private uh, companies, started off in the healthcare as a medical records manager and then went to general manager and a few other things as well. So a lot of health service experience, but also some in the um, uh, private space, really, and national programme. Um, my passion is to try and deliver clinical systems which improve patient care. Um, and although I suppose it links into uh, what Pi does, but also um, Matthew as well, it's for me, it's it's all about the clinical systems and delivering care, I think. So, uh, yes, so what I'm interested in. Perfect, thank you. Um, so we'll get stuck in with the questions. So Matt, we're going to come to you first. Your question was, what is the true cost of digital transformation? 
We seek to drive efficiencies and make trust more digitally mature. But what about the human element of the NHS and how they are impacted by digital transformations? Um, so if you could just start with giving us a bit of context around that and then we'll go around to the panel and, and see what their thoughts are. Yeah, thanks, Ellie. I, I think the, the main reason behind this question is having participated in a couple of uh, go live and, and digital transformation programs with uh, the Epic system, specifically down at the Royal Devon and Exeter and uh, North Devon. Uh, healthcare trust before they merged. Um, it, it was very interesting to see. We, we focus very heavily on the technology, what we're trying to implement, what we're trying to build, what we're trying to get in there. And we keep repeating to ourselves that this is for the betterment of everyone and everything that's going to happen is is going to be, you know, really efficient services, really great workflows, really end-to-end -end scaling that everyone's going to understand how to use the system and it'll be grand. Um, and when we kind of roll back, when we peel back some of the layers as we start getting towards the end of programs, we start asking the people who are going to be using it like here's the system and here's how it's going to operate and then they start getting nervous uh, and we get into this kind of change curve environment where uh, where we haven't really uh, graphs the human element of that transformation. We've really focused on the technology, really focused on the clinical processes, uh, the appropriate capture of information, you know, from my perspective for national reporting, but also for good clinical management. And then we start actually talking to the people, the nurses and the clinicians, the therapists, the pharmacists, the surgeons, everyone who's going to start utilizing the system. And that starts bringing out a lot more in terms of Oh, there's, there's bigger challenges here to just building a system that can functionally work on a day-to-day. -day. It's about making sure we've got buy-in. Um, you know, you get into the hearts and minds conversations a lot, um, which I'm sure, you know, by as, as you've mentioned, kind of grassroots and things, you, you want people to be engaged and bought into what's happening. And that's kind of what drives around. And there's also another element that when you get to these transformational programs, uh, the name in the title says it all, it's a transformational one. And so, especially in the NHS, uh, and, and Michael, as you've mentioned, from kind of a health records perspective, uh, there are sometimes very... A uh, very large digital gap in terms of where someone is and where they're going to be. Can the RDE went from paper files to a full fledged electronic system? So you had people running around with carts and trolleys bringing medical records all over the place. But in the new world, what happens to them? Uh, and so these kind of elements of digital transformation need to be all encompassing. They can't just focus on, you know, new digital maturity and we're getting better and we're, you know, five star and everything we do if we fail to identify the human element. So I guess that's that's the kind of the, the theory behind, you know, my query and my question is, you know, what what is the actual cost to us if we don't get it right? I guess maybe to caveat that a little bit, um, because it's important that the system doesn't do everything for us, still needs those human beings. Thank you very much, Matthew. Um, Pei, what do you think on that? You're on mute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Technology is not on my side today. Um, <laughs> so I think um, it's a very interesting question, and we face that every day when I try when we try to sort of promote or implement a new change or new idea as well. So I kind of um, when I was doing um, sort of some workshops with my trainees, I give the example of the theatre book. So like in a lot of uh, NHS hospitals, we have this book where you kind of record um, when the patient comes into theatre, when they get out, what the t what's the time, how long they were in a an anesthetic room, how long they were in the theatre, how long they got time to check out. And I think all this data is collected by the trust um, for sort of finance reporting and all the sort of the um, information things that they want to collect. And we have introduced 
all the trusts have introduced electronic systems to record these. Um, so, for example, the program called Galaxy, and I think Epic probably has a theater program or the timing tracing and stuff like that. But there is still this paper-based book in the theater. In every single theater, there is a paper-based book. And what's really interesting is like, so we have all these fancy um, computer system that can have, you know, do data analysis, drive change and all that stuff. And you can do fancy stuff with it. But what, why we can't get rid of the book. And what's interesting, if you sit in the theater, is that the user has other jobs to do. So data implementation isn't their priority. Um, and so in the theater book, if I'm the nurse, what is the quickest way for me to um, implement patient data and their journey is that I have a pen, the theater book, and a clock on the wall. When the patient comes in, I write a time they're in the anesthetic room. Patient, I put down the procedure, they check out, I put the time. So only three things, whereas all these sort of Galaxy program, Epic, program, all those computer electronic programs require me to sign in. If it signs in on time, if I can find the right patient, there's too many clicks involved. So it's not better, it's not better than my piece of pen and paper. So I think the price we pay for wanting to capture accurate data for analysis is that the user tend to be given additional tasks that they don't particularly have time to do. And then we're humans, we cheat, right? So like I know my my own work tried to get me to do these coding data and click all these things because you know every year I listen to the same lecture that if you if we code properly, we can get proper finance information and it's better. But I have 10 minutes to see my patients, two of which I'm waiting for them to come in and out of the, my clinic room. And then I have to do my own notes because I don't have medical secretaries anymore. I have to type in all the information onto electric patient records. Then I have to do coding. What do I do? I just copy and paste and cheat. Like there is not enough time given to the user to do all these data collection. Um, so I think the price is the user's time hasn't been taken into account that all these innovations are great, but if, if the user just don't have time to do it, uh, it doesn't seem, I feel that's a lot of pain points for, for the, the actual workers in the front line. Perfect, thank you very much. And then Michael, over to you. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, um, both I and Matt have summed things up really because, um, Regardless of the amount of digital transformation that there is, there's still humans at the end of it making decisions about what they do, how to deliver their job or the services that they're actually doing. And, and I think um, one of the things is um, for us, we heavily engage with um, our, our change teams. So we have transformation people within the projects, but only recently to carry all of that um, all of that through to the whole life of the project. So all those things about workflow, which was mentioned earlier, and about trying to um, transform things. It is um, it is really about the hearts and minds of, uh, of people because it is so it is so difficult. Because I think from the clinical side, I think they've been overwhelmed with a number of uh, with a number of changes and. I think there is a limit to what you can actually deliver. So although it looks nice and glossy, yes, we're going to get a new great computer system. Yeah, we're going to get more funding, but you're still going to have more patients coming through the door and you're still going to have a shorter amount of time 
to deliver your clinical care, which is what the reality is. And it's, it, it really is trying to juggle all of those, um, all of those things in order to uh, deliver the service. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Pei, if you want to go back over to you. You're on mute again. <laughs> uh, just a quick sort of um, um, comment, really. So I went to a seminar um, a couple of years ago, and there's this um, primary care, uh, almost like a GP setup in, in the US called Oak Street. And they had the same problem. Where they, they want collect effective data to feed into their reporting system and you know because they run as a private business it's important for these data but they encounter the same problem as if physicians don't implement data correctly so what they did is they hire scribes and when I heard like scribes that sits in your clinic and they just implement the data correctly and the doctor just get to be the doctor or the nurse gets to be the nurse yeah I just talk to the patient I think that's wonderful and I was like where, where can I can I get a scribe I, I would love a scribe you know and I think technology would be great if if we could automate in that way where I can do my consultation and whatever smart things in the air is capturing the conversation and automatically grab into information, that would be amazing. That's, that's like the sweet spot between data collection and user journey. <laughs> Thank you. Matthew, have you got something to say? Yes, yeah, just on that, I think Pilot, that's bang on in terms of it. Michael, you're saying the same thing. Like it, ultimately, the, the whole idea around the cost aspect is what, what is being lost to have to pay for this? Uh, you know, and nothing in, there's no free lunch, right? There's never a free lunch. Something always costs and it might not be financial. Uh, but in these cases, probably exactly what you're saying, like what's, what's the further technology? So yeah, we've got a shiny new system that allows us to capture all this data, but I still only get 10 minutes. Um, and I've, I've read a lot of white papers about, uh, you know, American companies going with Epic and, and other systems, it doesn't have that. And just the challenges that they get specifically too. Well, I used to have this support crew and this, this crew helped me do my job. Uh, you know, it's like a pit team when you're in a, a, an F1 car, right? Yeah, I drive the car, but I need to come in. I need my wheels changed. I need fuel. I need my screen wiped. I, I, I need things to make sure I can keep on track. And it's like we're pulling you into that. Uh, you have to get out of the car. You've got to change all your tires. You've got to do the, the refueling. And then you've got to get back in. And you get no more time than the six seconds it takes them to averagely do it to crack it all through. So, yeah, the, absolutely. There's, there's always something else. And things like you're talking about, I don't know, voice recognition is a big thing where they kind of turn it on the background. But you then start opening the door to, well, IG. So it doesn't just hear you. It hears the patient. And then what level of information do you capture versus not? And, yeah, it, it's always a, an expanding thing. Uh, and that's the interesting and that's that's it that's 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 the true cost it's, it continues to grow uh whether it's resource whether it's hiring people just to sit there and listen and, and right away or uh having technology which captures uh information from that perspective but uh yeah absolutely i'd say it's all bang on thanks matt michael um just a, just a general question so do you think that the cost is in recruitment and retention of staff then as we increase our digital implementation of systems that we have a reducing workforce. I think it's a, a fallacy that a new technical system generates less people at the end. Um, and I think it's important in some cases, absolutely. So again, we'll go back to the medical records perspective. I don't need, you know, 100 people running around busy hospitals pushing you know, paper files from one clinic to the next clinic and bringing it back to the central location. Those jobs, yes, they, they go, but the complexity of other things that you need, we will be expecting 
as, as Faye, as you said, we'll be expecting consultants or nurses to be documenting things that maybe they haven't had to document before. So we haven't considered the fact that, oh, a new system means we should be quicker, but actually we're not quicker because we're asking for you to put more in. We get a richness of the data, but cost to that is we need the resource to support that. And with Epic implementations and what we've, uh, what I have experienced in the past is the sense that, yeah, the, the business case is always, you know, always a business case phase. You said you want more money, you want more coding. Uh, everyone wants a bigger budget at the end of the day. Um, that comes with, oh, well, we can reduce. But actually with a system, it's not often the case. And understanding that transformation piece before you get into it, before you start down the path of digital transformation and implementing a new system, whether it's a, you know, voice recognition software or it's a full-blown EHR which covers off everything, you have to think about what is your end state. And, and Michael, to your point, I think that's the cost. I think it's recognizing that sometimes that's not less people, but it's a redistribution of resource or wealth, if you like, across the trust to ensure that the right areas have the right resource to achieve what they need to in a new landscape. And that new landscape is your go live and your new you know, technological system. Thanks, Matt. Pay back over to you. Just and to echo what Matt is saying, I think the cost is that the user, the clinical team, is then not working on the top of our license. We're asked to do other stuff, um, and it frustrates us when we have to do other stuff that may not we may not traditionally consider as part of our job. So, you know, for example, when I my my the generation above me, the consultants in the generation above me have medical secretaries. They Often they would do everything, but with electronic patient record coming in, medical secretary is a sort of a, a lost, uh, an old job that's on its way out. It's slowly being taken over by people dictating big hands and all that stuff. But actually then we forget the medical secretary is there to do other stuff. They're there to answer patient records, patient queries, appointment queries. And now all these are then dropped back to the nursing team or the actual doctor's team. And then we are then not doing the job at the top of our license. And I think that's a lot of uh, unhappiness in the workforce built up. And then I feel that leads to resistance of introducing new technology because it's just making my working life a bit worse. Thank you. Has anyone got anything else to add on that question before we move on to the next one? No? Cool. Um, so, Pei, your question was, what is the biggest obstacle in electronic patient records implementation? Is part-owned EHR an option rather than storing data in hospitals? If you could give us a bit of context and then we'll go around to the panel. Yeah, so this is almost like an experience from being a patient side, actually. So. Um, I think as a, as a doctor, sometimes I ask patients when they come in, or oh, how long has it been going on? How long has the symptoms been going on? And what symptoms, what triggers? It's kind of your traditional history-taking method. And often I get patients coming in just said, oh, you know, it's been blurred for some time, or it's it's just hurts, or, um, or if you start on some new medication for something, and they'll be like, yeah, it doesn't really work. I still have pain. And I almost feel like if... And then I take that information and I document into the hospital records and as the history. Um, but actually, I was when I was um, helping my one of my parents um, managing their back pain, and they're like, "Oh, it's not working. It's not working." I was like, "Why don't you just put a dot on the fridge, right? Every time you have to have back pain, put a dot on the fridge, and you start the medication, and you just have a look 
is your dot the same amount of dot you put on the fridge for the next month or is actually you're putting less dots in because it's actually getting better because <laughs> so I almost feel like if patients are able to in a way own their medical records rather than having all these extrapolated by the doctor then implemented into the hospital um, records uh, would that be a better option uh, for patients to own their own sort of I suppose own responsibility for their own health care um, I mean I've spoken to a few friends of mine where we thought if if uh, governance and ethics allows chipping your own medical records into your own arm seems to be a brilliant idea you know if you if I got hit by a car and then the doctor can just scan me and all my medical records are <laughs> there <laughs> um, so whether there's any potential to actually have patient owning the, the medical records so when they come in they plug in and then we see all their medical records uh, rather than it's siloed into different hospitals so at the moment in NHS is siloed if I move country it doesn't necessarily um, move with me my eye notes will be with more fields and my medical notes will be something else so whether patient owned option is it's the next step love that pay uh, Michael what's your thoughts on that um I know in the paper form, um, maternity um, sort of like the um, they've always, patients have always carried a proportion of their own record. It's not always a full record, but they've always carried a proportion. Um, generally, it seems to work because they're responsible, and you want you you want care, so you're not going to forget your notes. You know you've got an appointment, you're going to bring them with you. And okay, there may be still occasions where they are lost, but I think it, it it's much better. How we transform that into a digital setting and for, I don't know, general outpatient site, for instance, which is where all of the big numbers are in terms of attendances are, how we'd actually do that, I, I'm not sure. There's quite a few health apps out now and integrations and things, so, in theory, um, it should be it, it should be possible, and I think that will be um, again much better because one of the other things is more more about people taking some those that can taking more responsibility for for their health, and that would be the knock on effect of them keeping the records. Whereas um, I think the traditionalists will say, no, the patient's going to forget them. Uh, we're never going to see them. The fact that we may lose them if they're not in a digital format anyway is neither here nor there. Um, so I think there would be a, a lot of, I think there would be a lot of resistance, but I, I think it's definitely the, the way forward. Thank you, Michael. Matt, over to you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of split on the fence right now. I think uh, there are two really good points in terms of we'll call it trust and and emergence of technology um and i'm going to start with i'm not affiliated to epic when i say this um but as an example in terms of the epic system paid to what you're talking about uh, they have a function called my chart and my chart is something that be can be configured. Um, I know this because my wife has it for uh, some of her medical condition in terms of her, her spinal uh, injury. And um, as a result of that, she's been able to get details about her hospital appointments when her next booking is. She can message the consultant if there is problems. She can see when her next, you know, if she had medication stuff, they can be represented there. And, and that comes through. And I think to certain 
cohorts of patients. I think that is something that becomes fundamental to them. Michael, to your point, you know, I've, I've gone through uh, with two children. Uh, my wife's, uh, you know, we've got a five-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. So we, we've had the Red Book, right? We've gone that. We've had the information. We know what we need to bring. Got all this medical information. We got to go to our appointments with that one. And that's slowly transferring into that kind of, oh, I've got an app on my phone now, which contains the same information. I can document and become more aligned to it. And I think... Absolutely. There are going to be some people who are resistant to the concepts that you need to take responsibility for your health and the documentation or the management of your health. Uh, I think that's definitely both in in the industry and external. The general public would have that. And then you'd look at people who say suffer from renal therapy because of chronic re uh, renal disease or people who are going through cancer. And they're more likely to have an invested buy-in because they want the best outcome for what they have versus someone who might be suffering with a minor minor complaint, I would call it, more than a, a chronic injury or a chronic, chronic disease, who, you know, you know, maybe you shouldn't drink as much or smoke as much or exercise more. If, if that's just the thing that is, do we do we get the buy-in of a healthy society? And some of the industries out there are trying to push people towards that. So insurance, sort of my background as well, we know there's some insurance companies out there, hey, go exercise and you can get money off your premium, right? So there are some initiatives out there, but I don't think there's, you know, Michael, to your point, I don't think there's enough pressure. There's not enough hearts and minds pressure out there to change people's perspective in the general public, but it is the right thing. And it is something that empowers us to make sure that we are healthy and we're taking care of ourselves. Thanks, Matt. Michael? Mute. <laughs> yeah, I am. I was just about to say that, does that mean that the whole of London needs to be epic? And that that is a um, actually uh, does the whole of London need to be epic? <laughs> but does that mean that the other suppliers that are in that sphere, Cerner, need to get together in order to produce that functionality, so that those systems can be integrated in some way for the benefit of the patient, but also the clinician delivering yeah. care. I think there's there's two forms there, and it depends on what kind of model you want to go for in terms of a, an economic you know process or, or pressure. Uh, the NHS doesn't really um, enforce a singular choice in systems. Um, it usually comes down to what a an organisation can afford. Um, having way, way back in 2007, I think it was, worked for Connecting for Health, uh, when it was Connecting for Health for a short period of time. Um, as in, I worked for them for a short period of time. It was Connecting for Health for a while. Um, and it, during that time, we were supporting in an IT service desk environment a lot of the GP systems. So not specifically acute trust, but GP systems. And there was everything from one-man bands who've written their own little thing and selling it to, to GP surgeries to the big Lorenzo and, and Atos Ogin and those big companies that were out there. there there's a certain level of challenge like if you pay to your idea if you, if you literally want to say everyone should have an injection with some kind of rf chip which allows us to identify ourselves and that then records against ourselves you know you've got the spine you've got the summary care record which kind of has started that but where did the emphasis where did the the background go to to help boost that up and that's something the government you know, in, in the United Kingdom needs to be supportive of. In America, it's the health system, which is the insurance companies. In Canada, we had OHIP, which is kind of a mixed bag between the two. So there's lots of different environments, but that doesn't mean there couldn't be some like uh, centralized process or centralized language, which uh, allows companies to communicate through each other. And they don't specifically have to have that. And that would then open the realm for commercial companies to come in and fill the gap. So if 
you know, System C, uh, Lorenzo, or, or some of these other ones didn't have a functional product, well, there's a market there that would allow you to augment what you've got. It speaks to your system, but it also speaks to the wider population, that almost, you know, worldwide uh, contract of, of information and control of data which we know IG would love to get their hands on and, and throw red tape all over. Uh, but you know, there are there are values to that, and I completely agree. And I think it's it's a tough choice to say which is the best one. There are costs and you know pros and cons to each of those options to that. Does everyone in London need to be on Epic? No, I, I don't think that's, that's the absolute right choice. Is it possibly the way that things are going? I think we'll see the emergence of some bigger supercell um, systems uh, with the ICS involvement and, and certainly the, the wider development of those those areas wishing to almost do pay to what you're saying, like having a combined way of seeing data, no matter what trust you have. You know, if we talk about, you know, guys in St. Thomas and we talk about Kings, which are in close proximity, you, you've got Royal Brompton, Marsden, uh, Princess Royal. Like if I have an accident anywhere in that area, my records are now centralized within or will be centralized within one system. So hey, it's the start of what you're talking about. And Michael, it, it's great because at the end of all that, I can sign up for my chart and I can start tracking it regardless of where I'm seen or which consultant I'm referred to. But if I come down to the Southwest, I suddenly have lost that connection, even though there is Epic Systems down here. So it's not a full uh, foolproof method uh, or model to be able to do that we as trusts would have to talk with every other epic trust and then every other epic or, or um, system so it be otherwise but we'd have to have some kind of data set which we're, we're supposed to be submitting information to and controlling to allow people to very quickly get that and the best we've got is the summary care record at this point which i don't think meets the highest expectation uh, pay of what you're talking about thanks matt hey do you find it is a cultural difference uh it's harder to implement these type of, um, I suppose, unified records in the Western world. I ask this question because I'm from Taiwan originally and because of the COVID-19 and we have a national health insurance card. So it's not exactly chipped in our arm, but it's a card where um, you kind of, when you attend hospital, you, you know, you check in and things like that. So you, and there's a certain amount of records about you on it. And so it doesn't, doesn't matter which hospital you go to in, in Taiwan, even uh, sort of private sectors or public hospitals, you can always use this card. Um, and so in because it contains a lot of information during COVID-19, it was implemented in a way that if you, it also contains your record of swabs and, and COVID infection. And actually the government is able to use that data to kind of almost build electronic fence to quarantine you. So that we don't quarantine you with guards outside your door, but what's happening is if you swap positive, um, or you just come back from the, from a foreign country that's a red zone, which UK was at a time, um, the record of your travel is actually on your national insurance card. And so the government is able to randomly call you and they know exactly where you are. And if you go out of your zone, um, police do come and chase you down. But, uh, but <laughs> so it's actually utilizing that data for, I suppose, a pandemic um, control method, but less aggressive than, you know, actually taking you and quarantine you in a jail kind of situation. But the Taiwanese population is very, I think, more pliable. I think, you know, for example, the the, the um, notion of wearing masks in the public wasn't even asked, people were just doing it. And there was like protesting about not wearing masks was, wasn't even on the cards for the, for the population. So my question would be, is it harder 
for things to um, be implemented digitally. It, although we all know it might benefit the patient, it might benefit the trust, information flows better. Simply the national spine, people can opt out. So it's often I, I want to know about a patient's records from their GP and they haven't opt in or opt, they've opted out. I can't even tell their own medical records. Does Western patients have too many choice? And is that a bad thing or a good thing? <laughs> Thanks, hey, Matt? Uh, is it a bad thing? Is it a good? That's a very good question. Um, it definitely a cultural difference, and uh, it would depend on how people perceive what it is. If you are willing to say, I put absolute trust uh, in our government to do something and to manage it correctly and ethically and honestly um, for the betterment of society, then I don't think it's a bad thing at all. Um, you have here a an environment where, let's say tomorrow, they decided to scrap the NHS in comparison to not-for-profit, but insurance company-based healthcare. You could imagine the outcry from people who suddenly have to say, well, I was entitled to something and now I'm not. Um, there's a, a great book I read ages ago. It says, Who's, who moved my cheese? Um, and it's it's about change management. It's about going through that kind of concept of that. And it's someone saying, well, look, I've always been fed cheese. It's a mouse, right? I'm sitting here and people always feed me cheese. And then suddenly the cheese stops coming. Well, I'm not moving. The cheese will come back to me. And then the other one goes, I think I can smell cheese. I'm going over there and I'm going to see if I can find it. And, and I guess that's the difference in terms of how do you culturally review? Do I just sit here and you know, stand my ground saying, no, 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 it has to come back. I am entitled to this versus I can understand why there's a benefit to doing that and I'm bought into that. And I think that's probably the, the challenge is more from, uh, I've not been able to visit a lot of uh, kind of Eastern countries, but I think that's probably more for what I understand in terms of that function is that, yeah, you put a lot more faith into that and you see the benefits of doing that, where I think maybe there's a bigger challenge in the West that actually that might be an impingement or impeachment of my my freedoms, my rights to have these things. Um, and we don't see the positives to what it is. Um, and that becomes more extreme depending on how far west you want to go. Um, you know, we also the, the the almost the opposite strikes and riots and, and protests that were happening uh, in the United States when everyone was like, well, you have to wear masks, you have to get, no, no, I'm not having that. You can't make me do that. Uh, and, and yes, there's a different cultural perspective there. Are they right and wrong? No, because some people, you know, that's the freedom that they have and they, they choose to have that freedom and they're entitled to it because that's what they want from their civilization and their government and their culture. You, on the other hand, are happy with the fact that, yes, the government can follow me everywhere. Is that a bad thing? Actually, no. If it means that we can control our population and control disease outbreaks and limit the impact to the greater public, then that means our population is healthier to a degree um, in terms of what we do. So there are pros and cons to both sides. And it is very much a, I would put it down to hearts, hearts and minds. Uh, it depends on whether you can convince people of the benefits of that and then get over that change curve of, you know, push them off the cliff and just let them crawl back up the side. They realize it's actually not as bad as they were thinking it was and everyone's happy. Uh, Michael, you're smiling, you know, the change curve for all the projects that we have to deal with. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Thank you. Has anyone got anything else to add before we move on to the to the next question? 
I think the, yeah. the only thing I would add just to that is, um, I guess, the, the emergence of technology and whether it's a good thing. But, you know, I'm a bit of a Trekkie fan, right? So the tricorder, everyone talks about the tricorder. It's a medical device that actually allows me to scan myself and say whether I'm healthy or not. And we have varying things to this. We've got the little pulse measurements. I've got one from COVID uh, where I had uh, almost had to be hospitalized myself, um, but it was just checking to make sure my blood oxygen level was good. And so we have some of these technologies, but, you know, how far do you how far do you let it go? Like, how much do you trust in the technology to make you safe versus lead you astray? And I guess going down your line in terms of, of you know, having that technology and having the the the, the patient driven care or patient led care, if you like, um, you know, we, we we see you guys because you're the experts. Um, if I suddenly want and go use Dr. Google, uh, I'll probably have eight different types of cancer. I'll be blind by the age I'm 40 and uh, all my hair will fall out next week. And so it, there's there's purpose to to your beings uh, and, and being there for the, the population. Thanks, Matt. Come on, Peg. Uh, so I, I think I almost feel because the, the emerging technology are already there. I think the fear is people do use them. People do use Dr. Google, whether that is an opportunity to tap into that, that already, that people are doing it already. Cause you know, I have plenty of patients coming to my clinic saying, oh, they, they would, of course, Google works on the algorithm, right? So the scariest and the rarest form of disease pops up when you Google headache, it must be a brain tumor, um, nothing else. It can't just be, you've stared at the screen for too long. It has to be a brain tumor. Um, but if, if, you know, I have got a post oximeter from the COVID as well, but I think because I do feel that these are already there and people are using it anyway. So whether to kind of say, oh, no, 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 we want to keep everything in the, you know, ivory tower of medicine. But actually, if patients are already using it, wouldn't it be a better option or another option, not better option to actually involve them and actually direct them to have to use the correct, better source and informed technology than, than Dr. Google. Um, but yeah, I think I just feel sort of it's an opportunity because the technology is really cats out of the bag already. People are using it. So why don't we just I do feel it's rather than resisting and maybe we should tap into that. Thank you. Bab, um, we'll move on to Michael's question then. Um, so Michael, your question was, how do we keep clinical staff motivated and engaged in the ever-changing digital transformation landscape? So you want to give us a bit of context and then we'll go around to the panel. Yeah, I've uh, implemented a number of clinical systems, maternity, A&E, I'm doing a cardiology one at the moment. And one of the most difficult things, and you know the way that technology goes, it doesn't always work first time, second or even third time you have a group who are um, extremely important in the delivery of care and have competing uh, demands. Um, we're not always great at delivering when we say we do and I do um, have problems in keeping clinical staff engaged. Sometimes if a, a deployment, okay, we're doing um, EPIC GSTT uh, at the moment, but there's a lot of other small, relatively small projects going on. And keeping people engaged within that transformation space when you've got a lot of change, um, but also the people who really need to know which are the clinical team, um, for some of them, I'm struggling. I, I, 
you know, I make no bones about it. I'm actually struggling with others are engaged uh, and I'm not sure what we're actually doing makes them more engaged than the group who aren't being engaged. And I'd really like to know whether anybody's got any tips uh, around that and uh, particularly around um, clinical engagement. It, it kind of links into the first thing that we were talking about, really. Um, but I think that's the that's the context for the question. That is the context of the question. Thanks, Michael. Um, Pay as soon as you're clinical. Um, I think we should go <laughs> straight over to you. <laughs> so, I mean, when I was training, I've worked at other trusts where they implemented a program of electronic machine record, not EPIC, but another one that um, wasn't really fit for purpose for clinical need. So sometimes I think motivation comes, it's again, like echoing the first question that we were chatting about is that it's it's taking up too much clinical time. Um, so for me to do my, the job that I, most important job that I need to do at that moment in time is either explain the procedure to my patient or actually do a you know blood gas or something clinical and documentation falls behind um, my priority list, really. So often a, a well-intended electronic innovation or digital record or what uh, or, or an app or something supposedly helped me do my job better or more accurate or safeguard me, but I don't see that what I see is a cumbersome additional work I need to do. So I do feel that in keeping people engaged is if you can, if, if, if you're able to advertise that actually it, it saves you time and demonstrate that. And it does, and um, I think that does encourage more and more people to take it up. I saw a very interesting video in one of the um, sort of the management courses I took in the past that is the first follower that's most important. So you have this YouTube video where there's some random dude dancing on the beach really, really awkwardly, right? So he started dancing, people sitting around on the beach thinking this is a weird guy dancing. So that is your innovation with one very committed clinician saying this is awesome, let's do epic, let's just dance awkwardly on the beach. And then the first follower is the most important. So the first follower comes in, joins the dance, suddenly it's two people dancing, right? It's not so weird anymore. Then the people on the beach think, okay, there's two people dancing, music going, great. Third dance, third follower, fourth follower, and now suddenly it's a movement. And now if you're sitting down and you're not participating, you're the odd one out. So I do feel to keep people engaged, you have that, that idea person, but you, it's almost as important, you have like a group of second or third followers that join us in the fun. And then if the whole hospital is saying, yeah, this makes my life much easier, then you're the, if you're the lone star out there saying, no, 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 I like my pen and paper, then it's awkward. And <laughs> you don't want to be that awkward out. <laughs> so I do think, I think, I think personally, if, if I can see the benefit, if it actually makes me, makes my work better, I would follow. I think a lot of times the benefit is for the trust. And with a system like the NHS, it's not like if I see, um, if I do things faster and quicker, it will benefit me directly. It just means I have more work to do, more workload. So um, if if things are proposed in a way that actually I, you know, I get to go home earlier because I can finish all my paperwork um, in half the time. Um, and I think that would that would, you know, that would make it much easier. So, you know, it wasn't a pain for me to switch from a flippy phone to an iPhone because it's simply it's just simply easier to use an iPhone. It's got better features. So if new technology in medicine is as easy as 
changing from a landline phone that's hooked onto the wall to a smartphone, I don't think you need particular engagement. People just take it up because it's a much better option anyway. Like who, who, who remembers Blockbuster now, you know? Mm-hmm. Going to the shop, getting the video, the returning, getting a fine if you don't return it. I think Netflix was simply a better choice. You didn't need to engage people to take it up. I just, it's so much easier than Blockbuster. And I think we just, maybe we can learn from other industries that just seems to transition us much, much quicker and easier. Perfect. Thanks, Pei. Matthew, have you got any thoughts? Yeah, I, I think just to resonate what Pei was just saying, the, the two key things in my mind whenever we talk about these kind of areas of, of uh, I want to call them kind of social interaction or social sciences is probably what I would, you know, really bring it into. It's the psychology of, of getting people bought into an idea and you don't get that through uh, enforcement and in dictation. Um, you know, a, a country that has a dictator doesn't feel as um, as as clear and as as you know free as one that is you know governed by people that they voted into power. And by doing so, you're you're again you're going through the process. I guess you're looking for the person that that really crazy individual who actually wants to be prime minister, um, but is good at what they do. So I guess in in terms of quantifying that back down, you want to find a champion. You want to find a spokesman, that crazy person who is going to start the dancing. And we, at the when I was working with the RDE, one of the things that we endeavoured to, to do was make sure that champion was someone high up in a place of influence. Um, and again, it's like getting a celebrity or you know, again, a, a politician or someone to back you in terms of what you're doing. What you're trying to do is get high up the chain so that you're you've got a good soundboard off of which you can pass your ideas and you can do that and getting someone on the board or an executive or a C-suite to be that person to really really sell behind that but not just sell it as in like oh you've got to take it sell it as in like this will revolutionize what you do but then you have to come up with the revolution you've got to be able to you know make the bank at the end of the day and say yes we told you uh, this would save you you know 10% of your day in terms of documentation we're going to put in a voice recognition software so you can dictate all your notes uh, you won't have to spend ages trying to write it out or do quick links and things like that. and then you actually have to deliver on that promise and we know when politicians don't deliver on promises we get up in arms about it and say it's all you know for not you broke your promise and the same thing would apply regardless of the scale whether it's a country or is it trust if you get someone that's behind that and you can deliver on it, you get the buy-in. How do you sway some of those people? The honest answer is you can't. Um, Some people absolutely will not budge. I like my paper and pen, and if it was uh, paper and pen being introduced, they would say, I like my stylus and lead lead plate. Uh, You know, whatever the original technology was, I'm comfortable with it. And they're the hardest people to move, but pay to your point, they're also the people that at the end of the day, they're the last ones sitting. And everyone else has moved on. Everyone else has picked up the pieces and went, you know what? It wasn't that painful. And actually, yes, I get to go home early because I don't have to sit here for three hours with a pen and paper. Oh, my pen's ran out. And then I've got to wander around and find a pen or I don't have my paper. Or I don't have the file I need. Like, You start trying to show them the things that are less onerous in terms of doing that. It, it's hard in a technological world. Um, I, I can't say there's any particular genre or demographic that you can say. We had some you know, uh, really great, I would say, older generation uh, consultants who were absolutely 100% behind 
the implementations of what we've been doing. And we had some younger people that were just like, no, I don't like it. I just, I don't, it's, it's not as easy as an iPhone. It feels more like a Nokia or something. You know, I've got to do a bit, a bit more, you know, fidgeting with it or Blackberry. Um, I, I don't like it. I want something simpler to that. And it's that idea of transposing the, the promise of an easier future to people to try and get the buy-in. It just means that those people, unfortunately, that are, are the laggards in terms of picking up the late adopters to that one, just take a little bit more energy of uh, of your time. And the, the ultimate question is, is, is it worth your time? Um, and that's a bit of a harsh statement in some aspects, but if someone wants to drag the anchor in terms of what's happening, then sometimes it's better just to let the anchor go and say, you know, unfortunately, nothing is good is coming of this. It's not supportive. And I've heard examples across many different implementations where there have been people that have been adamantly and vehemently against the release of a digital system because they don't trust the technology, because it makes it open. It makes it, you know, they're worried about things being hacked, all good reasons. But each of those things could probably be argued with a really sensible counter. You know, you have a risk about, you know, being hacked and all the data being pulled out. Our mitigation is improved cybersecurity. You have worries about losing your login and not knowing how it does. We have a really good IT service to support you. So everything comes through and then you start getting into the realms of just really good risk management. And anywhere where the risk management becomes untenable, then you've got that broken promise. And that's where you have to then deploy a lot more energy to make sure you're you're picking the pieces up there to, to make it work. So uh, no golden answer, unfortunately. Michael, sorry, not from my view at least, um, but sometimes not you get lucky helpful. with the people. Yeah, sometimes mm. you get lucky, sometimes you don't. Thanks, Matt. Hey, have you got something to add? Just a little, little from experience of implementing something new locally. So um, when we uh, just give you a bit of a background where we have a, a really strange clinic called the eye casualty. So it's almost A&E for eyes. And it established, we don't know how long ago, but established in a way that because eye docs don't trust other doctors' knowledge about eyes. Um, I mean, it stems from very poorly taught eye knowledge, ophthalmology teaching in universities. So, you know, you five years of university, we have two days taught about eye health. So it's a bit harsh to expect non eye doctors to to be aware of and patients have this fear we have this fear about losing vision so any sort of little if you have a rash on your face you might sit on it for a couple of days rash on your eye you're straight into the hospital so there is a, that education element as well so what happens is there must have been a few cases where things has gone really really terribly wrong so up and down the country we have this eye casualty where it's almost like an independent A&E for eye issues and um, then we became a, a store of convenience so no longer people come in because they have an actual eye emergency. They come in because we're open and we're available. So um, I, when I, I was, um, when I took over the eye casualty unit uh, down at Croydon, which is the Moorfields Satellite Hospital, we had the same issue. And isn't we're not alone? Uh, lots of uh, eye units in the in the country have this. So people walking with three months. I think one of my patients had like a a year and a half scratchy eye sensation. And he walked up to eye casualty because he was taking his mom for another appointment. He just walked past our door and said, oh, eye casualty, walk in, let me just check my eye out. Uh, so it does happen. And because almost like, because, you know, if you build it, they will come situations. So it's there, <laughs> they will come. So I think it wasn't a, a great system for um, patient care, actually, because we are ending, the doctors are seeing things that are not emergency, not even eye issues. Um, and then the people who have true emergencies are delayed because they just re there's only so many doctors can see so many patients. Um, it's not great for the health 
uh, in terms of CCG and the finance because there's, you know, there a lot of these pa patients don't need hospital eye care, but the CCG are forking out money to pay for these hospital eye appointments that's not necessary. It's horrible for the staff because we're overrun, just simply don't have enough doctors to, to, to meet this demand. So, um, and it, you know, it's a frustrating situation working for the nurses. Nobody wants to work in that casualty. And it usually it's the junior doctors and junior nurses that gets swamped into it. Um, so it, it has been a pain point all my training life. So when I took over and I thought I could do something, what we did is actually implementing a triage system. And we looked for a lot of, you know, shiny stuff, cloud-based technologies, EPR, portals, but none of which meet the central requirement where I just want one point people can send information to. So we, we you know, ended up with NHS Mailbox because it is the most IT secure, least expensive method to collect these referrals. And there was a lot of um, resistance in the GPs in the country because they're used to just sending, you know, I issue. Nah, just go into the eye casualty. So there was a lot of that habit to break, a lot of fear to break as well. So what we did is we engaged one GP and uh, the GP lead and said, what will make your referral life easier? Because obviously sending the patients is not an option. We're going to say no, because these are the evidence that we are not actually serving our population well with this system. And they actually come back to us, actually, lots of people have tried different things, lots of tick box, lots of methods, and they just again, making their referral life so much harder. So what we did is actually, we just said, you know what, just send us one email. Say what you think you think it is, send us one email and we have started a conversation. And what's interesting is we've established that we've cut the attendance by 50% within a month. And we're seeing patients that we need to see. The GPs have this sort of communication window directly with the eye hospital so we can guide them and we've started a relationship which was vital in how we continue to provide eye care during the pandemic so and then you know a group of gp converted then the optometrist in the community converted and then the patients start to understand actually they don't really need to queue up at hospital all the time to get the information the care they need so almost like you convert a few and then you expand because people can see the benefit and now all the doctors and nurses want to work in eye casualty because it's the least harsh environment to work in a, in a high <laughs> clinic um, so yeah so I think it's just I think it snowballs eventually but uh, like you know like what Matt said is, is you've got that one champion who needs to drive and then gather a group of followers to to spread the reach really thank you Matt have you got something to add as well yeah I'll, I'll keep it quick because I know we're running close to time um I think what you're explaining uh, is convenience right at the end of the day the more convenient we make something you made a comment earlier pay uh, do you remember having to go to blockbuster do you know what I miss those days I miss the <laughs> memories pay of family getting in the car driving you know I'm from Canada originally so this is this was a pastime for us driving anywhere was a pastime you know we'd get in the car we'd go we'd run around blockbuster mommy can I have this no you can't have that one can I have this movie no I can't have where'd you get that movie for? you know th there's always things and yeah now today it's really easy you know we're on uh Disney plus I think it was the other day and you know the, the latest Marvel movies out. we don't even have to wait to go to the theater anymore I just have everything at the push of my uh, pushing my buttons so convenience has made it really good in, in the world of what we're trying to do to get people involved, convenience is kind of more of what we're trying to aim for. Um, there's a darker side to convenience.
it, uh, which is probably for another call. But um, convenience is the answer in terms of trying to get the buy-in, trying to get those sponsors, trying to make, you know, he talked about you have an NHS mail, the simplest form of technology that we can use, an email, been around donkey's years, and it still is a very effective way when used properly. For Michael and I, it's probably not used so properly, and our mailboxes are usually blowing up with unread emails because everyone's asking for things without really knowing what they're asking for. So we spend lots of times answering emails. Um, but yeah, in terms of the technology, it's the convenience that I think what you get. And if you get people bought behind the convenience and you display the convenience and the convenience can be established, then you get the good buy it. Then you've got all those people in a nice conga line dancing down the beach with everyone just shaking their head about how much drinks they've had that day. <laughs> uh, you know, that that's that's the way I would sum up uh, in the, the best way of doing that. Your sponsor is, is the, the driver of convenience. Thank you. Has anyone got anything else to add before we finish? No? Just a thank you from me. That's yeah. All. Thank you. The one word is convenience. Yeah, <laughs> I'll remember. Live and breathe it. <laughs> well, thank you all very much for taking part. I hope you've all enjoyed it. That's great, Ellie. Thank you very much. Thank you. Michael Pay, pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you both. Thanks. It was great Bye. to see you. Thanks, I'll look guys. for you around the guys at St. Thomas, Michael. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, you will. <laughs> Cardiology. Cardiology. Beautiful. Bye. We'll see you guys Have later. a good evening. Thanks, Bye -bye. guys. Bye. 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 Bye.